When we come to Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is still responding to questions and objections that probably would come up concerning what he has been teaching so far in the book of Romans. And in chapters 9 through 11, in this section of these chapters, Paul addresses something that is very crucial here to our understanding of God's overall plan of salvation and how he keeps his promises. Remember that we began chapter 8 with that great statement of God's truth, there is no condemnation in Christ for for those who are in Christ. So he begins the chapter with no condemnation. Chapter 8, he ends chapter 8 with no separation. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul assures us that in Christ Jesus, we will be brought to glory. No ifs, ands, or buts. But... This raises an essential question in the minds of Paul's readers, many of whom who were Jews. These questions must be answered. Then then what about the Jews? Did not the same God make the same assurances to the Jews as his elect? The Jews are God's chosen people as well, but the Jews, for the most part, are outside of the church, outside of Christ. And so Paul must face squarely the fact that as a whole, Israel has rejected her Messiah. And here's the rub and the crux of the matter that must be addressed. What does this say about the purposes of God if God cannot bring his ancient people, his old covenant people, into salvation? How do Christians know that he can save them? If Israel's salvation has been superseded by the Christian salvation, And lots of people teach that today. In fact, as we're going to see, the majority of Christian leaders teach that today, that uh, God's done with Israel and Christians, it's been superseded. So how do we know that God will not give up on us as Christians and that the Christian salvation will not be one day superseded by something else? And these are not just questions that uh, Paul's ancient readers grappled with. These questions have theological and geopolitical ramifications about Israel today. The vast majority of the people in the world today, and in history for that matter, believe that the Jews never were God's chosen people, and that the Jews are foreign occupiers in the land of Palestine. The world calls them occupiers there. You know, it's a foreign occupation, as they see it, on the West Bank and Golan Heights and uh, Gaza when it was part of, of Israel. As of 2013, the United Nations Human Rights Council had condemned Israel in 45 resolutions. That's more than all the other countries combined. We expect that from the world, but what about from Christians? If God is done with Israel, why should Christians care? So what do Christians think about Israel today? According to a Pew Research study, it was done clear back in 2003, but I think it's still pretty valid today. 36% of American Christians believe that the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. 36%, about one-third of, of American Christians, basically see that God is still fulfilling his purposes in Israel. Now, almost half of American Christians, 46%, disagree that the state of Israel is fulfillment of biblical prophecy. 18% don't know or refuse to answer the question. 
So you only have about one-third of American Christians who see God's hand in Israel today. Did you know we were that much of a minority these days? And this is an area where biblical theology and how we approach the Bible is so important. Because it deals with issues such as what is called replacement theology. Replacement theology. Where it is believed that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. Adherents of replacement theology believe that the Jews are no longer God's people. And God doesn't have specific future plans for the nation of Israel. Replacement theology teaches that the church is the replacement of Israel and that the many promises made to Israel in the Bible are fulfilled in the Christian church, not in Israel. And the prophecies in Scripture concerning the blessing and restoration of Israel to the promised land are all spiritualized or allegorized into promises of God's blessing for the church. Now, replacement theology could be called what is a branch or a subset of what's called covenant theology. Covenant theology is by far the most prevalent theology in the Protestant church today. And in covenant theology, the church is an expansion of Israel. And it seems to me that most covenant theologians reject Israel's future. Many covenant theologians teach that because Israel as a nation did not accept Christ as its Messiah in the first coming, that God has rejected the nation of Israel forever and replaced it with the New Testament phase of the church, that God has no future plans for Israel. So by the time you add Roman Catholicism into the mix, where somehow the Jews are just absorbed into the church and somehow still being distinctively Jewish, but they're also Catholic, the vast majority of professing Christians in the world see no future for Israel. Israel is no longer God's chosen nation, God's chosen people, because they rejected him. He rejected them. Israel broke its covenant with God, and so they see it. God is going to fulfill his covenant only through the church. Now, when you boil it down worldwide, and of course you can do anything with statistics, and I've put a couple of things together here, at least statistics show that only one in 12 professing Christians, one in 12 in the world, believe that God still has a plan for Israel. And so when you add the unbelieving world, is it any wonder that Israel has very few friends today? And the United States is really the only nation in the world that's still hanging in there with Israel today. Uh, I think, uh, which one is it? One of the African nations is is kind of interesting that way, where they're 80% Christian and they they hang in there with with Israel. And, And basically, it's because... Most of the Christian world, as we would call it, are not premillennial in their theology. Anybody know what premillennial is? That means that Jesus is going to return and establish his reign upon the earth for a thousand years. And, and we, we believe that. We believe that there's going to be a tribulation period prior to the millennial kingdom. And we believe that because scripture teaches it. And if we really kind of boiled it down and asked what is the purpose of this tribulation period, it is because God is going to do what it takes to bring his old covenant people to himself in faith in Jesus Christ. But most of the Christian world is not premillennial at all. So as we come to Romans chapters 9 through 11, these are the issues, these are the matters that Paul addresses. And the biblical text must be approached with care because these three chapters are part and parcel of the way that God makes plain how in fact he saves people. 
including the Jews. Look over at Romans chapter 11, verse 1, the 11th chapter, the first verse of Romans. Paul begins every one of these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, with a question. And here is the question in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And then we see that phrase that Paul uses often in, in his letter to the Romans, may it never be, meganata. Basically, we'd say it's a triple negative in the Greek. No, not ever, ever. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Israel was foreknown by God and predestined by God to be elect the same way we were. So that brings us back to the questions that would have been on the minds of the Roman Christians as they heard Paul's letter read or as they read it themselves. And the questions, the basic questions that Paul is going to answer here are such as these. First of all, if God offered salvation to the Gentiles, does that mean that he's forsaken his ancient people, Israel. And the second questions Paul addresses, the related questions is, if salvation is from the Jews, and first of all, to the Jews, why did Israel, including her highest religious leaders, reject Jesus as their Messiah, Savior, and King? If, as Paul said, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16, and if God grants glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and to the Greek or the Gentile, Romans 2.10, then why are most Jews still in unbelief? At the time Paul wrote this letter, they would ask, why is the uniquely chosen and blessed nation of Israel, who knows the law, who knows the prophets so well, not only rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, but zealously persecuting fellow Jews who believe it? You know, until the time of Nero, it was really the Jews who were persecuting Christians. Romans had very little to do with it other than they tolerated the persecution of Jews uh, persecuting, persecuting the Christians. And now, if these things are not clear in your mind at this point, don't sweat it. Paul is going to take three chapters of detailed study to address these matters. But first of all, he addresses them from the heart, with the heart. He doesn't first of all approach it theologically or with political or pointed argument. Paul's initial response to the tragedy of Israel's unbelief is first of all emotional. Look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 9 again. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul begins his treatment of the problem of Israel's unbelief by affirming his deep sorrow for what has happened to Israel. Deep sorrow for those who are accursed, anathema, separated from God. 
And he says he's telling the truth. He's not lying. He appeals both to his own conscience, but his own conscience only as it testifies with him and the Holy Spirit. You know, in other words, don't just trust your conscience. Don't let your heart be your guide because the, the human heart is wicked beyond all belief and the conscience is seared in the unbeliever. But with the Holy Spirit, Paul says, this is, this is my grief. Paul has just presented eight chapters of divine truth. And it took us, what, a year and a half, something like that, to get through those eight chapters. And these, these truths in these chapters are thrilling to those who believe, but they are devastating to all unbelievers, particularly so to unbelieving Jews. Because the Jews felt absolutely, totally secure in their racial heritage from Abraham. And they trusted in their legalistic performance of ceremony and their adherence to rabbinical tradition. And an unbelieving Jew who took Paul's words seriously in Romans chapters 1 through 8 would likely feel that, yeah, if this is true, then the gospel has left me as an outcast. Paul wants to let them know that this is causing him great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Paul's sorrow and his anguish is due to the fact that his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, the Jewish nation as a whole, is accursed. It's cut off from God. And we see that in verse 3 of Romans chapter 9 as he applies it to himself using words that they would think. For I wish that I myself were accursed, we could say instead of you. I wish I myself were separated to Christ instead of you for the sake of you, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And of course, Paul is speaking in hyperbole here because based on his security in Christ, he could never be accursed. He could never forfeit his own salvation, but Paul's passion for his own people reflected the gracious heart of God. God who loved the world that he what? Sent his only begotten son. It also reflects the equally gracious heart of the son who gave his own life so that others might live. Jesus said there is no greater love. Paul is just trying to figure out a way to express his love and his sorrow. It was Paul's great love for the lost that made him a powerful instrument in the hands of God. Evangelism has little effect if the evangelist has little love for the lost. Did you hear that? Evangelism has little effect if evangelism has little love for the lost. John Knox reflected Paul's great love when he prayed, Give me Scotland or I die. A missionary to India in the early 19th century Henry Martin exclaimed, Oh, that I were a flame of fire in the hand of God. And then David Brainerd, the missionary to the Indians in colonial America, prayed that he might burn out for God. Today we do everything we can do to avoid burnout. There's big books on how to avoid burnout. He prayed that he would burn out for God. He died before he was 30 years old, having led multitudes of indigenous peoples to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. We never would have heard of David Brainerd had not Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, had gotten fired from his own church. So he went to minister among the Indians, and there he wrote Brainerd's biography, which is a wonderful classic work today. Even Moses loved the fickle, ungrateful, and disobedient Israelites in much the same way that Paul loved them centuries later. Moses interceded for them after they built and worshipped the golden calf. During the time he was on Mount Sinai, they, they built this calf and they worshipped while he's receiving, or they worshipped the calf while he's receiving the law of God. And when God said he was going to wipe them all out, 
and going to start all over. Moses pleaded, but now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Compelled by love, what are we willing to give up? How are we willing to sacrifice for those whom we love so that they might come to Jesus Christ? What, what are we willing to do? Where are we willing to go? How are we willing to give? What is our self-sacrificing devotion to those who do not know Christ? The Apostle Paul expressed his deep sorrow over Israel's unbelief because they were his kinsmen whom he loved. Next in verses 4 through 5 of Romans chapter 9, Paul expresses his deep sorrow even more because they are God's chosen people. Paul loved whomever God loved, and because God loves Israel uniquely, Paul loved Israel uniquely. The Israel had every advantage. They had nine marvelous privileges or possessions that Paul is going to list here. And they are listed in verse 4 and 5 of Romans chapter 9. He says, These who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. First of all, they are privileged simply to be Israelites. They are descendants of Abraham through Isaac and then through Jacob, whose name was Israel. And before we look at the rest of the list of the privileges, here are some things to just think about when it comes to Israel. When God prepared his special earthly vineyard, he called it, the prophet Isaiah says he planted it as the choicest, with the choicest vine, namely Israel. It was the choicest vine. Israel's the top, the, the best. And I like what John MacArthur writes about this, just in a general sense. Throughout history, Israelites, or Jews as they came to be called after the exile in Babylon, have distinguished themselves in virtually every field of human endeavor. In science, the arts, music, business, education, political leadership, and countless other areas. They have always been a noble people and have produced a disproportionate share of the world's geniuses. You know, as I was reading that, I was just thinking about, you know, the, the missile defense, the Patriot missile defense system that, that Israel has in Israel and protects them as a nation. It's been sold to other nations. The United States just provided the money. Israeli scientists invented it. And, and nobody really knows how that really, that really works. They are certainly a blessed and privileged people just in that regard. And then Paul says that as the Israelites... It is to whom belongs the adoption as God's sons. The Old Testament scriptures tell us that the nation of Israel had been specifically set apart above all other nations and that they are God's children. God commanded Moses to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. At the covenant at Sinai, when the law was given through Moses, God declared to Israel, you shall be a holy kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was separated out to be God's unique and righteous witness to the rest of the world. 
Now this adoption of sons and daughters prefigured and pointed to our own adoption as children of God. But our adoption as the children of God is as different from their adoption as night and day when we compare it to the Jewish nation. Our adoption means that we are individually sons and daughters of God, our heavenly Abba Father. And that heaven is our home. That's where we belong. Now, the Jewish nation's adoption of sons did not have this meaning. The Old Testament does not ever refer to God as the father of individual Jews, like it does Christians. In the way that the New Testament does as God our Father, our Father who art in heaven. To the Jews, God is the father of, of Israel. And that's why the Jewish leaders were so incensed when Jesus referred to God as his personal father. And so what did they do? They picked up stones to kill him. Because we don't have that kind of relationship with, with the Father. Israel wasted her privilege as God's children. But God did not forsake them. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord lamented, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You have been born by me from birth, and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same, and even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. And that is still true today. God is still bearing Israel. Third, God blessed Israel by revealing to her the glory of his own presence in the Shekinah glory. In that unique and glorious way, God dwelt in the midst of his people. He guided them with the pillar of fire by day and the pillar, or the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. It was the glory that descended upon Mount Sinai. It was the glory in the Holy of Holies in the temple or in the tabernacle as well. And Exodus 33 tells us, Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his own tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as one man speaks to his friend. And then also Israel was blessed in that God gave them the covenants. The first covenant was with Abraham, the spiritual father of all who believe, through Moses on Mount Sinai, Israel was given the covenant of the law. It was through Israel that King David was given the covenant of the eternal kingdom. And it was through Israel that God gave the supreme covenant of redemption through his own son. No other nation has been blessed or will be blessed with such covenants. And fifthly, Israel was privileged in that God gave the law to them through Moses. The obeying of the law would bring Israel blessing. It was very simple. If you obey the law, you will be blessed. If you don't obey the law, you will be cursed. If you obey the law, you'll bring honor to God. If you disobey the, God, you'll bring, or the law, you'll bring dishonor to God. And shortly before entering the promised land, Moses reminded the people, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, 
For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And then sixthly, Israel was blessed by being entrusted with the temple service. The temple service refers to the entire ceremonial system that God revealed through Moses. The sacrifices, the offerings, the cleansings, the other means of worship and repentance, all those administered by the priest and the Levites. And when Israel obediently and sincerely worshiped the Lord, God promised in Exodus, I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then seventh, Israel was given the promises of God in a distinct and unique way. All the promises of God. But the best promise was the promise of the Messiah. The Messiah would come out of Israel and would come to his promised kingdom and would come to the forever throne of David. Paul preached to the Jews in Galatia and he said, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then eighth, and we're going through these quickly as you can tell, Paul tells his readers that it was from Israel that God raised up the fathers, the fathers, the patriarchs, the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom God named Israel. It was through these men that the foundations of the blessings were laid. And lastly, and best of all, Israel was privileged to provide the lineage of Christ according to the flesh. Christ was not incidentally born a Jew, but he was preordained to be the human descendant of Abraham and David. Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus' adoptive father Joseph all the way back to Abraham. Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus' natural mother Mary all the way back through Abraham to Adam, who is called the Son of God. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, Salvation is from the Jews. From the Jews would come the promised Messiah who would offer salvation to all mankind. And Paul concludes verse 5 with a benediction, Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. God blessed Christ, literally it says, unto the ages, amen. So one would think that Israel favored with these nine blessings, none of which any of them belonged to any other nation on the face of the earth, prepared and educated for centuries for the arrival of the Messiah would recognize and welcome him when he came. But they didn't. And that broke Paul's heart. Now there was nothing Paul could do for Israel as a whole. All that's in God's timing. There will be a time during the tribulation period 
when according to Paul, he'll write in Romans, all Israel will be saved. There is coming a time in the tribulation period where, as he wrote to the Corinthians, when the veil will be lifted, the hardening will be taken away, when all of ethnic Israel at that time will receive Jesus Christ. And we have this 144,000 evangelists, we call them, 12,000 from every tribe who are called the first fruits, who are going to see during the tribulation period, these first fruits, 144,000, are going to be just the first fruits of the full blossoming harvest of all of God's old covenant people. A time for rejoicing. But in the meantime, Paul will show us in these chapters in Romans that all of these nine privileges that we see in chapter 9 are even now being savingly, redemptively used for an elect remnant in Israel. God is still at work redeeming his people. And how does God redeem his people? The same way he redeems any one of us. One at a time, personally, from our witness, from sharing the gospel, from telling others as they one at a time receive Jesus Christ and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Turn over to Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 15, our last passage here. Begin at verse 12 of the 10th chapter of Romans. Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The word translated preacher there is not the word that we usually use as preacher, but one, it's one who heralds good news, who proclaims good news. As hark the herald angels sing. The herald, you know, I used to wonder, who's herald angel? But hark, hark the herald, you know, they're heralding this, this good news. And so really, it's, it's referring to anyone here who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the heralds. We are the ones who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is anyone who, because of their great love for the lost, whether that lost person be Jew or Gentile, that our love for the lost, God will use us in his powerful hands as a herald to proclaim his gospel, to share with others. And yes, a lot of Jews are being saved today, and a lot of people say that as a great precursor of when God will do the great work among his old covenant people. So I'm going to end with the same questions we asked earlier. So compelled by our love, What are we willing to give up? How are we willing to sacrifice so that those whom we love might come to salvation in Jesus Christ? What are we willing to do? Where are we willing to go? How are we willing to give? What is our self-sacrificing devotion to those who don't know Christ? And you know what the benefit of all this is? You're going to have beautiful feet. You're going to have beautiful feet, which means people are going to be blessed because you took the gospel to them. Shall we pray?
Father, as we, at least I was as I was studying this passage this morning and talking about it, I, people came to my mind whom I know and some of them I know very well, Lord, that don't know you. Lord, and so my prayer as we close this morning is for the hearts and the minds and the lives of those that we know and we love who don't know Christ. Father, I pray that you would open up a door of opportunity to us who do know Christ, that in a loving, wonderful way, Father, we might be able to share the good news with them and see that marvelous work that the Holy Spirit does of bringing them into a saving relationship with the Savior Jesus Christ. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.